The cybersecurity team at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, is about to finalize a new version of a signature document, the Cybersecurity Framework. Next week, it holds a workshop to get one last round of input on the framework draft. Joining me with more, the chief of NIST's Applied Cybersecurity Division, Kevin Stein. Mr. Stein, good to have you with us. Hey, good morning, Tom. Thanks. Let's begin basically what exactly is the cybersecurity framework that you're about to launch version 2.0 of, and maybe then tell us how that relates to the various publications that NIST has, uh, the library of specifics on cybersecurity. Yeah, absolutely. So the cybersecurity framework, in my mind, is a tool to help agencies and other organizations, certainly a very broad user community, to better understand, manage, and reduce cybersecurity risk. It's based on existing standards and guidelines. It's based on existing practices for organizations to really help them do that. And the body of NIST cybersecurity and privacy resources, the special publications and other outputs that we produce with the community are really intended to help organizations achieve the cybersecurity outcomes that are expressed in the cybersecurity framework. And the framework is used pretty much across the board, correct? Across the government, but industry also often adopts that as a way of looking at cyber, correct? Yeah, very much so. The framework does have a very broad kind of user community and audience. I'd say it initially started back in 2013 with an executive order that was really focused on voluntary use by critical infrastructure owners and operators. But over the last decade, we've seen it become required for federal agencies through follow-on executive orders. We've seen just tremendous voluntary adoption by industries, by other layers of government, state and local governments, for example, and even internationally, because of the value that common language that the framework provides just has a tremendous value proposition for all different shapes and sizes of organizations. And could one reason for that be is that you get wide participation each time you launch a document or, more importantly, the updates, which come pretty regularly. We're now at 2.0 of the framework. I mean, who all gives you input here? So we get input and we actually actively seek input from a very diverse audience, very diverse user base. Again, all the types of organizations I mentioned before, public, private, nonprofits, you know, large, small, you name it. We really go out and try to engage with as many parts of the stakeholder community as possible, both domestically and internationally, to get informed on things that will, uh, you know, how's the framework working for them today? Uh, What are the things that work well? What are the things that need greater clarity? Are there new features or, uh, you know, additions to the framework that would provide even greater value? And that type of input through the different types of stakeholder engagement we do, including the workshops like the one we're hosting next week, are really central to our ability to do that. How specific does the framework get to the particular, I don't know, environment at the moment for cybersecurity? Because different types of threats come and go. Solar winds type of attack happened, and wow, that's something new. And then there was the uh, log-based uh, attacks. Well, that was something new, too. There's always something new like that. How does the framework take into account the fact that there's always some new threat and that the landscape this year is different from, you know, a month ago? Yeah, it absolutely is. And that landscape will be potentially slightly different from one organization or one sector to the next. You know, we want to keep the framework, we want it to be threat informed, but also technology and sector agnostic and threat agnostic in some ways. So the framework is really 
you know, structured to be outcome focused. So what are the important cybersecurity outcomes that organizations might need to achieve to help them better identify, assess, manage, and really reduce risk? And that would take into account, you know, the diverse types of threats, both things we've observed today, as well as things that, you know, maybe we haven't observed yet, but will be new things that affect agencies and other organizations. So really taking that technology and business process neutral approach is actually one of the values of the framework. And and I think why we see such broad adoption, because it's flexible. So the idea is to teach people to fish, but not put a worm on their hook. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. All right. We're speaking with Kevin Stein. He is chief of the Applied Cybersecurity Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Is it possible to write something like this in reasonably plain English? You know, we've tried our hardest to do that. You know, certainly a lot of the resources we produce are on very technical topics, and we try to use plain language as much as possible to describe those both, uh, you know, what it is and, and, and why it's important, why organizations should care. Uh, at some point, we do get into the nitty-gritty technical details. But I think the cybersecurity framework tried to break that mold a little bit because of the diverse audience. We wanted this to be really a big tent approach, bring as many types of users and different communities in, not just the cybersecurity professionals, but the C-suites and the board of directors who have such a critical role in the cybersecurity kind of risk management process, but also the other parts of organizations that have an outsized influence on cybersecurity, whether it's a legal or acquisition or human resources. You know, all of those organizations, uh, parts of organizations have very uh, important roles and have to be brought into this discussion. And we can't do that through a deep technical discussion, you know, that unique cybersecurity language that many of us speak, but not everyone does. So the framework was really developed in a way, and and it's always being improved to help be more, more of a digestible resource for very different types of people. And you're not exactly engaging in rulemaking here, but you use some of the forms of rulemaking, especially taking in comments and publishing them. And just looking around your site, it looks like you make a pretty good effort at making sure this whole process is transparent by actively publishing and giving links to all the comments that everyone has made. Yeah, you know, everything we produce in our NIST cybersecurity and privacy program is done in a very open and transparent and collaborative way. And certainly the framework has followed that exact same process. I think that really helps to instill both trust in the process, but also trust in the final product that we produce in this case, you know, whether it's a standard or a framework or some other resource. And I think, you know, the benefit of that is that I think it leads to greater and more meaningful adoption of those resources, which is ultimately what we want to see. You know, these resources being used and adopted in ways that make improvements to you know, our cybersecurity within organizations, but also across the nation as well. And workshops and other stakeholder engagement are such a critical part of that. And in recent years, we've seen the emergence and the lavish funding growth of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency over at the Homeland Security Department. Do you collaborate with them a lot since they own much of the operational aspects of cyber for the federal government? Yeah, we absolutely do. We, we collaborate with many federal agencies, I would venture to say probably all in some way, uh, but very closely with CISA in a number of different areas, certainly, you know, because they have that keen operational focus and, and their resource and they have tremendous expertise and relationships with agencies in the private sector on those operational matters. We want to learn from them and hopefully, you know, help inform some of their activities as well. I think their operational role really helps to inform 
our cybersecurity guidance, our frameworks and other resources to continue to make sure those are going to be responsive to the, the current threat environment and the needs of the community. And through our development process for these resources, uh, absolutely we share with them uh, in hopes to inform some of their operational activities as well. So it's a great relationship we have, very strong one. And tell us about the workshop that's next week, kind of the final round of input before you go from draft 2.0 to final. Yeah, we've had a couple of virtual and hybrid workshops over the last year leading up to where we are today with the framework. I'm super excited about next week's. Uh, This will be the last kind of formal workshop uh, before we intend to issue a final 2.0, Cybersecurity Framework 2.0, in the winter of 2024. Next week's workshop It's a two-day workshop. The first day is going to be uh, hybrid. There will be an in-person component as well as a virtual component for folks to to follow along around the world. That first day is going to be entirely panel-based. We'll have experts from different parts of the industry, uh, industry and government uh, across different sectors, you know, helping to, you know, share their expertise and inform some of the the key improvements that we're seeking to make in the framework, whether it be around organizational governance for cybersecurity or cybersecurity supply chain, the relationship to standards and guidelines and other critical areas as well. So super excited for that. The second day is going to be uh, in-person only, and those are really going to be the the roll-up-your-sleeves working sessions where we have uh, facilitated uh, discussions, smaller group discussions, where we really go deep into the framework, look at the actual text that's in the framework, and make sure that the words we're using and the things we're focusing on are the right things, and we're doing that in a way that is going to be meaningful to the community. So we're we're super excited. I know we we always get so much out of these, and I'm confident next week will be the same. Kevin Stein is Chief of the Applied Cybersecurity Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with links to everything you need to know about the Cybersecurity Framework 2.0 at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people 
and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting that vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that 
and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can't. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. 
And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.